0: Hello and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, the show that explores how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm Bentley Kaplan, your host for this episode. And on today's show, we are going to talk about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. As we are recording this, details are still emerging, pieces are still moving and there is an ongoing Senate committee hearing. And as we wait to see where things are headed for the bank, we are going to take a look And how things got to where they are, and more specifically, how ESG does or doesn't fit into the story. Thanks for sticking around. Let's do this. In early March, on the back of rising interest rates, Silicon Valley Bank, a bank used by many US tech startups, announced that it needed to raise more than $2 billion to shore up its balance sheet. From there, things moved pretty quickly. By the 10th of March, the California Department of Financial Protection and Innovation seized SVB and placed it under the receivership of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC. And on the 26th of March, the FDIC officially took over control of the bank and administrators are now looking to unwind the bank's investment management, investment bank, and wealth management divisions. It is an abrupt and chaotic end to the bank's 40 year history. And as SVB stakeholders run their post mortems, a lot are looking at the warning signs that popped up and how much of this was foreshadowed. Or conversely, about signals that said the opposite, that the bank was in good shape only for it to fail days or weeks later. And this episode is going to talk directly to these post-mortems. We're going to draw a clear line between financially relevant ESG factors and financially relevant financial factors. And in the process, we'll highlight what an ESG rating is and what it's not. At the time of its collapse, MSCI ESG research, that's us, had rated SVB financial group Silicon Valley Bank's parent company at a letter rating of A. And that's on a scale that goes from the highest of AAA to the lowest of CCC. Seven possible letter ratings and an A put SVB just above average. And the factors that drove that A rating included an above average performance on consumer financial protection, average performance on privacy and data security, and a range of market-leading corporate governance practices. But we had also flagged the company for governance risks, including, since 2016, a lack of board level risk management expertise, and since 2021, a lack of industry expertise on the audit committee. So in the context of ongoing debate about the role of ESG data and ESG ratings in investment decisions, we're going to square the circle between an ESG letter rating of A and a company like SVB collapsing. To do that, I've pulled Harlan Tufford into the hot seat. Harlan is based in MSCI's Toronto office and is one of our team's corporate governance experts. And first up, I asked Harlan at a high level what our ESG rating is looking to measure or how to interpret a letter rating of A.
1: So, you know, when we're talking about an A rating, it's worth kind of backing up and saying what, what it is we're trying to measure. What is that, what is that A rating meant to reflect? And, and, you know, ESG ratings. They look into how companies are managing their environmental and social and governance-related uh, risks and opportunities. And, and that, is, that is a difficult thing to measure, um, particularly when you compare it uh, with something like a credit rating, where you know, credit ratings are unidimensional measures. They're, they're, they're only looking at one thing. They're, they're answering the question of how likely is it that this company will, will default on its loans, not be able to pay back its debt. With an ESG rating, there's a range of different factors and considerations. It's a multidimensional signal.
0: Right, so to echo Harlan, an ESG rating and a credit rating are not the same things. An ESG rating is not a narrow assessment of how likely a given company is to fail. In our ESG ratings model, as Harlan points out, we look at several different key issues. For a given company, that would be a small number of environmental, social, and governance factors that we consider to be financially relevant for that company, based on the industry that it's operating in. We essentially look at how exposed a company is to these ESG risks and how well it's managing those risks. For SVB Financial Group, in our ESG rating assessment, we looked at one environmental key issue, four social key issues, and two governance themes. And based on the collective assessment of these issues, SVB was doing above average compared with other banks that we assessed. Now, environmental and social key issues drove 67% of SVB's rating. An assessment of how well the company was managing risks and opportunities related to its customers, as well as underbanked or underfinanced communities, and also how the company's investments and policies took into account environmental impacts, including in activities that exacerbate climate change. But I said earlier on, and as Harlan stressed several times during our uncut interview, SVB's failure was not tied to either its social or environmental risks. Most questions are pointing towards the company's decision-making, something that may have to do with SVB's governance. And 33% of our ESG rating of SVB was based on a governance assessment. So next, Harlan took me through what a corporate governance assessment looks to measure, how we assessed SVB, and whether this brought up any clues about why it may have failed.
1: Really what we're looking at there is to assess the effectiveness of the board's decision-making systems, looking specifically from the perspective of a non-controlling investor. And so they were looking at things like uh, the board's structure, uh, its independence, um, the expertise of its directors, how the company is owned, uh, how it's controlled, investor rights, uh, how the degree to which executive pay is aligned with investors, the, the external auditor, and any kind of significant events that could adversely affect the company's ability to exercise board-level oversight or that could indicate a weakness in its uh, decision-making process. And at SVB, you know, overall, the, the company demonstrated evidence of fairly strong governance practices. It, it, didn't, it didn't have a perfect board. We'd noticed um, since 2016, actually, that the, the board lacked risk management expertise. And obviously, that was you know, quite a relevant consideration um, given the context. And we'd also flagged the, the board for lack of industry expertise uh, on its audit committee. But overall, the company had, a you know, majority independent board, an independent uh, chair, which particularly in the United States is not a good common practice across that market, fully independent board committees, recent board refreshment, um, fairly well aligned executive pay practices, and then there were no control enhancing mechanisms like, like dual class share structures. So across all of these uh, measures, the company actually uh, came out fairly well under our uh, corporate governance methodology.
0: Okay, so as Harlan explains, SVB's governance structures, data that it must disclose in public filings, look to be in pretty good shape. A lot of things were in place to support the interests of non-controlling investors. But crucially, it wasn't perfect. Some aspects raised specific risk flags. In particular, a board where directors did not appear to have formal risk expertise and an audit committee that did not have a director from the banking industry. And knowing how the story ended, these risk flags will certainly draw the attention of anyone conducting a post-mortem of SVB's collapse. There is also a side story here about an eight-month gap in 2022 when the company did not have a chief risk officer, a highly specialized role specific to just a few industries including banking. But discussing the nuts and bolts of that headline would be an episode in itself. So instead, I focused Harlan on another question. Because we have a company that was flagged for risks on its audit committee and the board itself. Weaknesses that look very conspicuous after the fact. But on aggregate, SVB looked like it had decent corporate governance structures. So how do analysts or investors think about this? And are there factors that they might consider beyond the model about what goes on inside an actual boardroom?
1: So when we're looking at governance, it's, I think it's important to remember, first of all, that you know, even, even you know, good systems uh, that, that appear strong on paper can, can produce bad outcomes. Uh, bad outcomes if if the the people operating within that system you know aren't aren't the right people for the job. Decision makers uh, and corporations are constantly exercising judgment um, and, and making making decisions based on those judgment. And people don't always make the right decision, and and some err more frequently than others. And for us as as analysts, this is you know, quite an important consideration because we're really looking at these companies from a thousand foot view. Uh, our our only insight into these decision makers and, and the systems in which they operate uh, are the disclosures we receive from proxy circulars, uh, annual reports, other disclosures, uh, and the, these you know sources are very good at telling us quantifiable things that are you know, relatively factual. Like, have any of the directors? Work for the company before? Have they otherwise disclosed attributes that could compromise their ability to be independent in, in thought and and, uh, and fact uh, at this company? Have they disclosed uh, professional or academic experience that suggests they have risk management expertise? Uh, how does the the CEO's pay structure work? Things like that we can we can see from the disclosures, but those disclosures are quite bad at telling us. Things that companies would never disclose in a proxy circular, like which directors actually ask good questions and and which ones are phoning in in the meetings, or or how you know, how well structured are the board's meeting materials? Are the directors actually you know looking through the binder they get before each quarterly meeting? Are they actually getting the information they need up front, or uh, is is the you know the, the really important information buried under a you know, thousand pages of, of schedules A through Z? Are the directors actually independent in thought and and When we move beyond the board level, where we get the most disclosure down to executives, this gets even trickier, um, because the further you get from from the board and and the CEO role, the less information you receive about these uh, decision makers.
0: Right, so this is a key part to the story. It can be difficult or impossible to actually peel back the skin on some of these governance questions. We can make a pretty granular assessment of the frameworks and structures that a company's board uses to make decisions. But knowing exactly how decisions are made is a different question entirely. Companies aren't reporting on how much debate is going on, how many different opinions are being offered, and what information is actually being put in front of directors and how it's being presented. And all of that has a bearing on what decisions a company takes and what strategy is ultimately adopted. And the outcomes of these decisions and strategies can be measured. Sometimes it's about things like a company's emission reduction targets or its policy on data security or wage negotiations. Or sometimes it's about how much leverage is acceptable, how to direct new investments. But whether all of these things should be measured in an ESG rating was my last question to Harlan.
1: Well, I mean, the, the clue really isn't the name, I think. You know, we, we're looking for environmental, social... Uh, and governance risks and opportunities, and really at SVB, it is, it is quite clear this this was driven by basic financial decision makings. Um, and we you know, we 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 did explore uh, a number of years ago and, and ask clients about bringing in uh, issues related to capital adequacy or, or asset quality, um, liquidity, for example. And the feedback that we received was that you know, this this was uh, not the role that that ESG ratings should play in the marketplace. For example, our corporate governance model evaluates the decision-making framework. But the actual decisions produced by that framework, how much risk to take, um, how to structure assets and liabilities, um, these these are decisions for investors um, to evaluate. Uh, And I think SVB really demonstrates that distinction. It, it, It reinforces that ESG investing strategies are complementary to and not a substitute for an analysis of companies' fundamental financial and and business decisions.
0: Right, for me, Harlan says it best. It's all in the name. ESG does not cover core financial risks. We are looking to assess financially relevant environmental, social and governance factors, not financially relevant financial factors. Harlan also referred to our annual ESG Ratings client consultation. Through this process, we propose changes to our ESG Ratings model and that's to help adapt the model as more data becomes available and as regulations and disclosure requirements change. And we put these proposals in front of our clients for their feedback and perspective. When it came to the question of incorporating financial metrics into ESG assessments a few years back, it was a pretty consistent no thank you. You folks stick to the ESG and we'll look at financial risks. Which is how things currently stand. Just like a traditional assessment of financial risk isn't expected to tell you how well a bank is managing its risks related to data privacy or financed emissions, an ESG rating isn't designed to tell you about that bank's financial health. For investors wanting to know what they can take away from all of this, it might feel like a bit of a difficult ending. But there are a few things worth keeping in mind. To misquote Nick Cave, the death of a company is not the end. ESG is constantly iterating as more data becomes available and as we understand more and more about how incidents like SVB's collapse unfold. And that means that ratings models can be better informed. Also, regulators are very engaged in this event and regulators are ultimately the ones that decide what information companies need to report on. And these requirements also change with time. So investors might take comfort in both of these ideas. But ultimately, however good an ESG ratings model becomes, and however extensive company disclosures become, it will still be up to investors to figure out how to interpret these different signals and data. And that means also being able to consider something like governance risks in an ESG model, say, a shortage of risk management expertise, and more traditional financial considerations, like a company's strategy for matching assets and liabilities and in knowing how and when to adjust the dials on these signals. And that is it for the week. It's been great to talk to Harlan about his take on the news with an ESG twist. There is, of course, a lot going on in the banking industry at the moment, and if you want to get more of a taste, please go and check out MSCI's Perspectives podcast, hosted by my silky-voiced colleague, Adam Bass. Last week, Adam spoke with Andy Sparks, Jim Costello and Florian Summer on the episode titled Banks Have Investors Feeling Deja Vu All Over Again. The show is up on all major platforms and on MSCI's website. It's been great to have hosted this show for the last few weeks. If you enjoyed it, then drop us some stars on your platform of choice to show us some love. In the meantime, the host with the most, Mike DiCerbeto, will be back with a vengeance starting from next week. So hopefully that news will help you get through the rest of your week. Until then, take care of yourselves and those close to you. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, and this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.